This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, this is Molly. I'm Kristen. Kristen, today we're going to talk about debutantes. An age-old female tradition, and um, believe it or not, I myself was a debutante. You know, and you told me that earlier this week, and I so surprised. I know. I was telling her earlier also that, you know, that game Two Truths and a Lie, Mm -hmm. where you've got to tell people, like, they've got to find something that's a lie about you, and it's really hard to figure out. Um, I usually either throw in the sorority thing, which I talked about on our sororities podcast, or I throw in the debutante thing. Yeah, two two pretty random facts about you, Molly, because in my mind, not knowing much about debutantes, I imagine debutantes as uh, an apologies to all the other Debs out there. But you know stereotypes too, of being very uh, stuck up, mm-hmm. rich, and man hunting. Yeah, you know. Well, let me tell you about my experience, just to broaden your horizons. Yeah, please, please bust wide open my my stereotypes. So the reason I was invited to do it is because my mother did it when she was a girl herself. Um, and let's see, I remember it as being a really great time to bond with my mom because we got to go shopping for the big white dress mm-hmm. that sets a debutante apart. And when we were researching this art, uh, this podcast, I was looking at these articles about how much girls spent on their dress, like thousands and thousands, thousands. of dollars. Mm-hmm. I did not spend anywhere near that. Like that was sort of the fun of it was like finding the $200 beautiful white dress. And recently I was talking to my mom about marriage and I said something like, Oh, I'll just wear my debutante dress again. She was like, no, you won't, but it led to me trying the dress on. It still fits. I saw the photo guys. It does still fit like a glove. Yeah. It's a beautiful dress. So, um, you, you wear your dress. You get to invite like 10 of your friends to watch you do this. Um, you have a nice dinner. You get all sorts of like parties thrown where you meet all the other girls. Um, none of whom went to my high school. So it was a really great way to meet a bunch of other ladies mm-hmm. in the town. Bunch of eligible ladies too. Well, I wasn't looking for an eligible lady. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's kind of the whole deal, though, right? Well, that's the thing. I was not aware that, like, historically, this was something that parents did to tell society that their child was ready to marry. I mean, that's we'll get into the history of it, but I just Molly's thought... on the market. I just thought I was getting to wear a pretty dress in front of everyone. <laughs> Little did you know. Little did I know they were pimping me out. <laughs> um, so anyway, you get presented. I did not do the bow that we wrote about, that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you are kind of presented and they talk about your accomplishments. You dance with your dad, then you dance with your friends. I had more fun at that than prom. Maybe maybe because I was the center of attention. Yeah, that that, <laughs> that could help. That does always influence my enjoyment of things. Yeah, today in the U.S., the, the debutante ball, to top all other debutante balls, is one that happens in uh, 
New York every year, and it's the International Debutante Ball. And wealthy, it's it's for very wealthy girls. It's an invitation-only thing. That's the thing about these debutante balls that I didn't realize was that it's an invite-only type of thing. You have to be tapped to become a debutante. And um, uh, I found a slideshow on New York Magazine from the 2008 International Debutante Ball where they went around and like showed pictures of the girls and had like little mini interviews with them. And one of the girls, to give you an idea of the social echelons that uh, this ball caters to. Uh, Ariana Huffington of the Huffington Post's daughter, Christina, participated um, in it. And uh, a lot of these girls, too, are already in college. I thought that it was something that you would do around when you did it when you were 16 or 17. But but most I, of these girls were, were already in their 20s. Yeah, but I also think that I did like a junior version yeah. of it. So I think that I did have the option that I turned down to become like a super debutante, which is what I called it, mm-hmm. where I think your dress is just bigger. And maybe that would be like the more expensive version of it because those parents for that international one, a table there costs like $15,000, right? Yeah, the table costs $14,000 and um, their dresses usually cost several thousand dollars and some families will spend, you know, upwards of 10 grand just on this dress. And I thought that the the responses to some of the girls uh, were kind of interesting from this New York Mag um, slideshow, for instance. New York Magazine asked uh, one of the debutantes, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Penniman from California, who said, can you be a debutante and also a feminist? And her response, after a long pause, said, I think it would be difficult to be the stereotypical feminist, but I think you can be a debutante and still support women's rights. No one comes in thinking, okay, this is where the woman gets married, hopefully to a rich husband. And I think that that, like her response does point out, like, you know, kind of the stereotype of the debutante being, you know, just this sort of uh, silly tradition to, you know, show marriageable women off to men because I think at this debutante ball and I think at a lot of the other big ones as well, there are usually at least two men for every girl. And I think all of these at the international ball also have a military escort. So it's just swarming with men and these gorgeous girls in their in their finery. Oh, and it's also they're all wearing white too, which is yeah. little seems a little symbolic. It's a little loaded. So I think it's fair to ask, um, you know, do we still need this? Do we still need a ball that reminds people of days in which women were presented as eligible bachelorettes? Mm-hmm. And also, do we need to spend this much money? You know, all these articles had to point out that, you know, times are tough right now. And is it really great that we've got girls, you know, parading around in these thousand dollar dresses? And, it, you know, it's just one night. It's not even a wedding night. Right. Because that was one thing that um, there was an article or a paper, I should say, written about, um, Debutante balls and kind of understanding the sociology of it specifically in the United States, because as we'll talk about in a second, it's something that originated over in England. And they say that these balls kind of contradict this idea of the U.S. being sort of a classless state as opposed to England that had um, far more rigid um, class structures because debutante balls are something that are that were normally reserved for the upper classes in the U.S. I mean, you had to be tapped to do it and you have to have the money. You have to have the 14 grand to even buy the table. Mm -hmm. So anyway, more on that later. But Molly, do you want to talk about how it was back in the day, why we even do this in the first place? Yeah, man, I wish I was around for this because while when I did my thing, I just sort of, you know, waved to people from my hometown in the old days, I would have gotten to curtsy to the queen. Yes, or the king. Or the king. Yeah, this reminds me, it's very My Fair Lady. You remember when she's, oh, yeah. when Rex Harrison finally presents her? And she gets to uh, to meet the, the Duke of Transylvania. <laughs> Get 
tell that I was a fan of musicals as a child. <laughs> um, so basically, uh, the royal family would move around, uh, to different houses, um, at different times of the year. And they would be in residence at the capital, um, from April to July and then from October and to Christmas. And so during these months when the, when the royalty was in town, all of the aristocrats would basically flock to London to make their appearances known. And so by 1780, we have the custom of returning to the capital at the end of the hunting season was well established. And George III held a May ball. And that kind of kicked off this, um, this whole debutante. Tradition. Right. And it's worth noting that he originally held this to raise money for a new maternity hospital. Mm-hmm. And some of the articles we, we read about modern debutante balls still have that charitable association where the money goes to a cause. And that's how some people, you know, kind of rationalize spending that much money. But it either goes to a cause or the women, either the mothers, or the daughters have to do some work before the event um, for the greater good. But it started um, for charitable reasons. But because all the aristocrats had flocked around there, it became prime, like, social scene time. Yeah, it was... The, Dating it was, is in bloom. It was the start of the social season. But before a proper young woman could date, she would need to be presented to the court. Yes. And make a debut at high-profile events so everyone could see, like, yes, this woman is now considered within the realm of good society. Yeah, but it wasn't exactly easy. I could not, probably if I I had lived back then, um, you know, I, you, you can't just walk up, knock on the door to like, the hey, palace. Queen. Hey, queen, my name's Kristen. I am eligible for marriage, <laughs> I guess. Uh, you know, you, you can't really do that. So but the, the process was a little complex, and this is coming from the DeBretts website, which is still sort of the the source of British etiquette. Um, and it said at the end of the year, an announcement was made by the Lord Chamberlain of their majesties intention to hold courts on specified dates the following year. So if you wanted to make an appearance in the court, you'd have to send an application beginning on January 1st, um, that would state that you want uh, gracious permission to attend one of the courts to present your daughter. Um, and then if the request was granted, you would get a summons card about three weeks later stating that you were allowed to come by. And the presentations, I was surprised at this, presentations were always held at 10 p.m. Kind of late. You gotta have a ball afterwards. No one wants to have a ball at five. That's true. And, and these summons were considered to be royal commands and therefore had to be obeyed unless under extreme circumstances. And so then the debutante and her mother would be ushered into the royal presence and announced and this part is still practiced today in these, in the main, um, debutante balls, like the international debutante ball. The w- girl will step forward and make a low curtsy to both the king and the queen, who would each bow then in acknowledgement. And, and I also like this. She was expected to, to exit walking backwards <laughs> from the royal presence, which I think you usually have to do, but it's much harder when you're wearing. A white dress. Yeah. I imagine myself tripping over my, my train or something. And that, this whole, uh, idea of the low curtsy is something that is carried over today into, um, especially Texan debutante balls because Texan debutantes are known for their particular brand of curtsy called the Texas dip, which according to the articles we read, they get so low to the ground that their nose actually touches the ground. When they curtsy and they're wearing these huge poofy dresses. So they almost like sink down into the satin and lace and touch their nose to the ground. That does, that does not sound fun. Because nothing shows like a good wife than someone who can curtsy. <laughs> who can touch their nose 
to the ground. Now, one thing we didn't mention, Kristen, is to make that application to the monarch to be presented, it usually had to be, or did have to be, by someone who had already been presented, usually the mother. So that's where we get this um, tradition of it being kind of a hereditary thing. If your mother mm-hmm. did it, then you've got a pretty good shot of doing it. Now, in England, Queen Elizabeth was the one who, when the class rigid class structure started to evaporate a little bit. She did away with it. She would just have like garden parties where mm-hmm. she'd present them. Basically, they became less fun, I think. Yeah, but uh, one thing too, that one tradition that has carried over still is the traditional dress for being presented. The girls would usually wear um, a simple white gown, um, but shades of ivory or pink were also permissible. And they would also wear a, a veil. <laughs> yeah, I didn't wear a veil. <laughs> we're sounding more and more like brides here. And then um, they would uh, they might wear a simple string of pearls. Yes. Uh, Debrett's described the jewelry as being very girlish, but that the mothers had um, license to go full hog on the family jewels. Yeah, they had to represent the uh, represent the family well. So now what I thought was interesting on a side note, obviously this tradition has migrated around the world, and we can talk a little bit about all the places it's been, but um, proms were actually a way to let everyone dress up for a night. Yeah, I think that they were, uh, they started in the 30s and they were basically debutante balls for the pores. Yeah. So I probably, I probably would have gone to prom, Molly, when you went to your debutante ball. Oh, stop putting me on a pedestal, Kristen. I know. I just, I just feel a little inferior right now, Molly. But you're not, Kristen. And I want to point you to the work of one Diana Kendall from Baylor University who wrote an article that we read called Queen or Pawn, Society Debutantes and Upper Class Identity. And it was about how there is really no standard deb. They're not all rich girls from who are dying to be part of the upper class. But there are women who do it and really aren't that excited about it. But it's it's tradition. It's what your mom did. Um, you know, it's not like there's some stereotypical snobby girl. I think if if anything that we talk about Sminty, there's not like always a stereotype associated with debutantes, cheerleaders, sorority girls. Let's be open-minded about them, Chris. Yeah, but Molly, there is an elephant in the room that we are not addressing with all this debutante business. And Tell that me. is, well, namely, um, sexism and classism. You know, because these things, first of all, are invite only, mm-hmm. only reserved for the wealthiest people, you know, I guess so that they could, back in the days, so that, you know, they could meet eligible gentlemen of, of the right class. You don't want to marry down. Don't want to marry down. And, um, and that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then there's also this idea of, uh, I mean, should we really be still practicing such a, like, blatantly, like, sexist tradition? Because I liked this. This is also from the Diana Kendall um, paper. She said that in the 60s and 70s, debutante balls really started to fall out of vogue with the rise of feminism. And um, s- some young women started presenting themselves uh, as NCPD or no cream puff devs to show that they were not subordinate to men and that they were accomplished young women in their own right. And I will say that like when I was looking at the, um, those different girls who presented the international ball, um, they were coming from Brown and Columbia and Yale and Harvard. And, you know, obviously while they are coming from incredibly wealthy families, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, they're in Betty Crockers are going out and getting fine educations as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that from my own perspective, like I said, I was so unaware that the ceremony had any of those connotations that I don't know that it's necessarily an elephant in the room for me because I didn't pick up on the fact that it might have been a sexist thing. That doesn't mean it wasn't. But I do think that one thing that kind of struck me, and maybe it didn't strike me until I saw the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Kristen, Mm -hmm. which you might remember has the scene at a black 
uh, Cotillion. I don't think I picked up at the time, but now it kind of bothers me the race uh, breakdown of some of these things. Right, because since they're invite only, um, I'm sure back in the day, um, these were mostly all white mm-hmm. affairs. Um, and now today we have, um, and I ran across some of these websites, there are um, plenty of all black cotillions that happen as well. But there doesn't really seem to be that much integration no. in these at all, even today. Right. So I, I do think that's troublesome, but... Um, we were reading one article that was pretty cool about um, an aboriginal debutante ball. And the author, Anna Cole, Anna Cole was talking about how it was not so much an attempt to assimilate into white culture, but an attempt to take something and make it your own. That these kinds of traditions and rituals are very adaptable and that, you know, if you have been marginalized for a long time, as if aboriginal people were, mm-hmm. that maybe taking that tradition and making it your own in some ways can be just as empowering. But I don't think that it's uh, this issue of um, race and debutante balls is quite um, as simple as that. I mean, here in the U.S., we've had um, debutante presentations going back to uh, 1748. I mean, it's something that's obviously deeply rooted in our social history. But there was one incident that I thought was um, particularly telling, and this happened in the winter of 1972 in St. Louis, where um, civil rights activists uh, basically um, launched an attack. And by attack, I mean like kind of picketing outside. And they went in um, to this debutante ball that was held every year in St. Louis and um, disrupted the ceremony and went up on stage and everything. And um, the, the the person who was writing about this, this is from historycooperative.org, said it shouldn't be surprising that historians have begun to investigate these as sites of cultural hegemony and, um, and resistance. And I think that in this type of incidents, it is... Um, kind of symbolic of uh, sort of an exclusive upper class white culture, you know, that really isn't um, not only um, uh, excluding other races, but also other uh, classes as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Way to make me feel bad about something. I know. Else now I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying. I'm not. Now I'm not trying to diss you as a deb. But I do think that there. I think it's interesting to uh, to look at the whole picture of it and and how it's kind of progressed. So would you be more comfortable with an event where? I mean, there there are plenty of cultural examples of women of women becoming sort of recognized in society. Before we started talk. Before we started recording, we were talking about bat mitzvahs, mm-hmm. um, quinceaneras. There are different ways that every Citing culture recognizes that someone's a woman. Yeah. So would one like this, would it be more comfortable for you if um, they didn't wear white dresses and it wasn't invite only that maybe everyone could apply to become a debutante? Well, at some point, though, I don't think that that would even exist because I think the whole point of these and when I say when I'm talking about debutante balls, I'm talking about the ones like the international ball, mm-hmm. like these $14,000 table ones. Uh, they're never going to open it up because the wealthy exclusive class of people aren't going to go if everybody can go. True. I, mean, I think that's, I think half the point of this whole tradition is the fact that it is exclusive and, um, you know, someone, some average Joe on the street couldn't just, you know, stroll in and start dancing with someone, you know, and then somehow have a leg up in society. That's true. But I do wonder, Kristen, when our generation of women becomes that very wealthy upper class, will it still be as important to us? I mean, maybe we're the generation where when we have daughters, we're like, I don't know if you want to spend $14,000 on this. I mean, do you think that, yes, they're well-rooted in our history, but at, at the same time, I think it's it's easy to say that there's a pretty big divide between, you know, our parents and this generation. Maybe they'll die out. 
Yeah, it could. I think that they could uh, could certainly die out. I mean, I think that there are going to be different pockets of the country. I mean, like Texas and uh, like the South in general is a little more known for for debutantes. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there are going to be similar events to it that are going to hang around for for a long time. So you will just have to continue to be a class warrior. I guess so. You know, and and if I do happen to have 14 grand extra. Sorry, future daughter. You're not getting a table at the international. You're going to summer camp. We're going on a cruise, (laughs) which is honestly just as awesome. Yeah. Um, so write to us. What do you think about debutante balls? Were you one? Did you know one and hate her because she was a massive snob? Which I think Kristen might have had that experience. No. No. I'm just joshing with Kristen. Um, so write to us. Either way, whatever you think about it, let us know what you think. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And we will do just a few quick emails from people who have written to Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. So the first email is from Sarah, who requested that we read her email because she has something to say to you guys. She writes... Um, She wrote to us after she heard the podcast on women's hair loss. And she writes, when I was little, three or four, I pulled out my hair constantly, especially at night. My mom had to work hard to cover up my bald spots in the morning. I never understood why I kept doing it. Eventually, I started biting my nails, twirling my hair, picking at the skin on my hands, and other many mutilations. I'd known since I was about seven that I was depressed, and I was always an anxious kid. I was finally diagnosed with severe depression and anxiety last year. I'm 16 now, and I was miserable for 12 years of my life because my brain doesn't function like a normal person. I'm on antidepressants, and my tics have all gotten much better, especially the hair pulling. Please read my email to your listeners. I want everyone to know that this can happen to kids as well as grown women, and it is possible to get better. I encourage everyone to seek help for themselves or a loved one who is suffering. All right. Well, I've got an email here from Annette, and she is writing in response to our recent podcast on pain. And she says that she thinks... I think part of the reason you get a different reaction from men and women may have less to do with evolution and more to do with sports because icing is a common practice among most athletes from high school sports up. My husband played football in high school and college and he frequently iced a sore ankle or bad knee by filling up a garbage can with water and ice and placing the affected limb in it for about 10 minutes. Uh, Recently I had a dirt bike injury and hurt my hand pretty bad and my husband's solution was to have me ice my hand in one of our cooking pots about three times a day. It does burn and sting for the first five minutes or so, which may be why that was the limit given, because after that time period, your limb goes numb and the pain stops. You just have to get past the initial burn, and then it doesn't hurt at all. Men tend to play and or watch more combative sports, uh, may be more familiar with this practice. I think the pain would be mitigated, and studies certainly compromise if people had experienced icing or were familiar with its practice. Understanding that... Understanding that it has a purpose can, in my opinion, lower the amount of pain we experience. Right. I think she was writing about all those laboratory tests we talked about yeah. where people just stuck their hand on a bowl of ice. Right. It's, it's to see how long they could. So men might have had the upper hand if they've ever had an injury. So guys, if you have anything that you want to say to us, uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts. Uh, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And during the week, if you want to see what Molly and I are up to, you should head over to our blog. It is called How To Stuff. And if you want to read some articles we have written, in addition to checking out our blog, in addition to seeing the site that we spend lots of time on, you should head over to HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hi, I'm Allie Wentworth. How do I grow a teenager in a pandemic? 
Well, that's exactly what I want to find out. In my new podcast, Go Ask Allie, I'm asking experts to help me answer that question. For example, are quarantine teenage girls more apt to Instagram nude photos? Are they somehow going to end up on the dark web? Are teenagers getting ripped off by their new virtual education? And how do we deal with their overwhelming anxiety and uncertainty? And are they losing empathy? I'll be talking to experts and friends like my friend Brooke Shields. She'll reveal how her complicated sexual upbringing has influenced how she is as a mother to teenage girls. It's a new world, and how we raise these young humans in it determine our future. So let's share some real experiences with all new episodes releasing every other Thursday. Listen to Go Ask Allie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Young Rockers Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.